This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 430, a conversation with John Ostrander. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 430. It's our conversation with John Ostrander. Uh, we're going to get into it in just a moment. Uh, first off, just wanted to say if you want to email us, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, for this episode, it's a nice long conversation with John about his career in comics. We talk about Suicide Squad, Martian Manhunter, uh, his work in Grimjack, uh, his influences his beginnings, a whole boatload of things. Um, but I want to thank uh, the some of our fans of the show from the Marvel Masterworks Forum. Uh, we had actually a, a lot of questions come in, so I really want to thank everyone who submitted questions. Um, not everyone got a direct shout-out in the middle of the interview, uh, but I want to thank the following users. Uh, Mr. Articulate, Ukla the Mock, sorry, Ukla the Mock, uh, Dilo Tempio, um, we had a, a lot of questions. Uh, the Monkey, Dino Mutt, 1977, uh, Jag, 2045, um, DJ Way with a, a fair bit of questions, uh, Garuda. Uh, some of them we didn't necessarily answer or ask them specifically, but the questions definitely came out of the conversation, as well as questions from uh, Green Meerkat and Faust33. So thanks so much, guys, and also Comics Ate My Brain. Uh, so thank you so much for submitting questions for the show. I definitely um, contributed to uh, getting a, a really great conversation in with John uh, and helping us uh, know exactly which which areas to kind of focus on, and I think uh, you'll really uh, enjoy the upcoming interview. Um, so without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with John Ostrander. John, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing this evening? I'm all right, and uh, I hope you're well, too. I am indeed. We have uh, a lot of questions uh, came pouring in for you today. It's like you're Santa Claus, and it's right before Christmas, and tons of letters came in just for you. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's get to some questions for you. Well, I'll have one of my own first, which is uh, going way, 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 way back. What was your initial uh, re- um, kind of um, interaction with comics? Was it when you were growing up, or when was that first exposure? Oh, geez, uh, that is going you know, back to the Stone Age. Um, I was, uh, well, I love comics from like a, a, first of all, I was a reader from a very early age, and uh, and I loved comics early on. I can't even tell you what is the first comic uh, that I read or how I discovered them. Um, it may have been uh, at the barber shop where, uh, uh, where he had a bunch of old comics uh, stashed in with the magazines. And, um, anyways, I got exposed to it. You know, also, of course, I'd watched the Superman TV show, um, the black and white one. Um, uh, and, uh, so I knew who Superman was. And so that brought me into that world as well. So, um, now I, I love superheroes, but, uh, my mother, either she read Frederick Wortham or she was told about Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent. So we were told that we couldn't have superheroes because, you know, they would lead us wrong. Um, 
so, but I was able to read things like Classic Illustrated and Gold Key and Dell Comics and stuff like that. Uh, through one of them, I think it was Gold Key, uh, I, I came across uh, two large collections of, uh, of spirit stories. And that was my first exposure to, uh, to Will Eisner. And they were all colored up. And I didn't know that they were back from the uh, 40s and so. Uh, they, they just seemed so contemporary to me. You know, I got such interesting stories. So I read those until they fell apart. Um, but yes, of course, because superheroes were also uh, verboten, I, being a kid, I, I had to, of course, read them. Of course. So, so, uh, so I snuck them in whenever I could, and every once in a while I'd, get discovered, or I'd be discovered and yelled at, and I promised not to do it again, and then did it as soon as I could. <laughs> um, uh, also, um, I was in a uh, Catholic grade school, and they had a monthly comic book um, that was permitted uh, and sold in school called Treasure Chest. And uh, so I was able to read that every month. There was an anthology of different stories. And uh, some of them were actually pretty good. Um, one was uh, called 1976 Pettigrew for President. And um, it was a dramatic story of a man who was running uh, for the nomination to president in his own party which of course wasn't specified which one it was um, and, the, and the trick in it is that you never actually saw him until the very end of the story and on the very last page once uh, Pettigrew gets his nomination you, you pull back and you finally see that he's black now this is back in the 50s Wow. You know, so, so uh, and um, the question was posed at the very end of the story. Uh, it, it said, boys and girls, in 1976, you will be able to vote for president. Would you vote for, for Pettigrew? And so uh, that was kind of stunning at the time. But uh, also it was very well written, and um, they had wonderful cliffhangers on it, too. So, um, so that heavily influenced me in terms of wanting to read it. I remember my first Marvel was um, I got in high school. Uh, it was and it was Spider-Man 49, and I picked it up at a spinner rack, which they don't have anymore either. And um, the whole question was, uh, uh, or they showed in 49 Spider-Man uh, unmasked, being told through the air by this character called the Green Goblin. And he had been unmasked and discovered. And uh, I knew nothing about any of the backstory on any of that, but that cover really drew me in. And because that, that never happened to Superman or Batman, they didn't get unmasked by their, uh, by their enemies. So I had to see what was going to happen and, and, and how they were going to do it. And uh, so that got me into the whole Marvel Universe at the time. I'd already been reading DC. So I guess that's a pretty long-winded answer to, <laughs> to your question. No, no, that, that's a good answer. Now, when did you ever kind of fall out at any point? Like, was there a point when when you were in your teens where you kind of fell away from comics, or did it ever go? Did it never go away? I don't think it ever went away. Uh, uh, it might uh, come and go to, depending upon how much money I had to spend. But um, no, I stayed pretty much in it. Um, I was reading. Um, uh, I read the X-Men when they weren't actually very popular and they got canceled. Uh, uh, so, And I was there the first time that they killed off uh, Professor Xavier. <laughs> first of many. 
yeah, the first of many. And I was also there when they brought him back the first time, too. <laughs> so, um, so I was there for, like, oh, just all of that stuff. Uh, I was there for... Uh, Kirby and Lee on the Fantastic Four when it really was the world's greatest comic magazine. I saw uh, a lot of the early Doctor Strange issues, uh, and they really were strange. Um, and again, like nothing else I uh, I was reading anywhere else. you know. And I was there when Steranko did um, uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and then went on to do Captain America. I was a big fan there. I was there when Barry Windsor Smith first started drawing Conan. So uh, uh, it was just, uh, I've, had quite, uh, I've had quite a career. I've been a fan for long before I was a writer in it, before I was a professional, and I'm still a fan. No, I guess that brings up the question of, you know, what? how did you kind of decide to make the jump to writing? And because I know, obviously, you weren't originally a comic writer. You were involved in theater. And, like, so how did that transition end up working? Well, uh, uh, because, I, you know, I loved comics. And, I, you know, I, I really wanted to work on it. And my friend Mike Gold uh, was starting up uh, First Comics, which was in Evanston, Illinois, which is the northern suburb, uh, the first northern suburb of Chicago, and I was living just south of that line. And uh, so Mike and I had known each other for a number of years, and he was a big fan of a play that I co-wrote called called Bloody um, Bloody Bess, which was a pirate play, and uh, done by the Organic Theater, which was run by Stuart Gordon. And we had any number of um, people who became well-known later on and went on. Uh, Meshach Taylor uh, was in it. Um, uh, uh, oh, God. And the others are going straight up out of my head. But <laughs> um, uh, Dennis Franz was in it. Oh, wow. You know, uh, Joe Mantegna. Um, so uh, we had a... It, it was a wonderful company of, of, uh, of actors. So I was... Um, I had co-written that, and Mike was very impressed with it. He he loved the play. He'd gone several times to see it. And he knew I was also a big fan of another play that the Organic Theater had done, which was called Warp, which also was billed as the world's first science fiction adventure play in serial form. And essentially what it was was a Marvel comic put on... Uh, put on stage in um, in three episodes and I went to see that any number of times so he knew I knew that and they had gotten the rights to adapt Warp into comics and uh, knowing that I was a big fan of it they had room for a backup feature in the uh, with the uh, with Warp comics and, and a page backup feature so Mike gave me an offer he says well how would you like to try to write a um, an eight-page story. And I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. And so I took one of the characters from Warp, Sargon, Mistress of War, and I created a story called Rough and Tumble. And, um, uh, and so I wrote up the plot and, sent, and gave it to him, and he gave me corrections and notes and sent it back. So I redid it, and then I reset it, and he, he looked at it and gave me more notes, yada, 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 back and forth, until finally one day he gave me a call and says, well, congratulations, John. Uh, your story is going to be in the back of the very first issue of First, which will be the first uh, comic that First Comics ever publishes. And I said, oh, Great, that's nice. Do I get paid for this? Yes, you sap. And so I made my um, 
professional writing debut. First time I got paid for my writing, which uh, which was tremendous. You know, up until that point, I had thought I had had a uh, writer's block for a couple of years, and then I discovered if somebody was willing to pay for me, all of a sudden that block went away. <laughs> Well, that, that that would definitely make that go away a little bit, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least it did for me. And what was it like, kind of work, um, you know, doing more, more and more work for First Comics? Well, you know, um, uh, I was delighted. I mean, I, I, I was still in theater at the time when I was an actor, and um, and and all that. But um, again, I, I loved comics. You know, and I learned things, and I brought things to it from my from my various other things, like being a playwright, like being an actor, um, like uh, studying with Del Close in improvisation and stuff, which which was tremendously helpful to me as a writer as well. And um, so it, it was just a very exciting time. And in, in you know within a year, uh, I mean. Up until that time, I had been working different support jobs, you know, uh, that enabled me to indulge in going to uh, doing theater. And um, all of a sudden, I was able to make a living off of my writing. That was tremendous. Yeah, that, that's a huge jump, right? Like now you're able to just focus on the writing. I'm, I can't even imagine what what that must kind of feel like when you're, as you said, kind of doing the other jobs to kind of support yourself, and suddenly you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, because they were, you know, I, I mean, I was never a waiter, but I worked various other, you know, piddling jobs that didn't make a, a lot of money. The only um, advantage to them was it allowed me to go off and audition and be in plays and then come back and work some more. So, um, so it gave me a source of income when I wasn't do, uh, doing theater, which was very frequent. Um, so uh, that was tremendous. And at one point in my theater career, I was in um, a, a Christmas Carol at uh, at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. It's a big production, very popular. I was in the first one, and then every year after that, and I played such important and sundry roles as uh, um, Fred's friend number three, dancing <laughs> uh, man. Uh, Mr. Rounds, you know, ensemble, you know, so, uh, and my job largely consisted of running around backstage, changing my clothes, and then coming back across the stage as somebody else. Uh, and one night when I was doing that, and I was supposed to be a mourner with a casket, and I was supposed to be walking across and being very much into the moment, and as I was walking across the stage, into my head came the thought, you know, I could be making a lot more money at my typewriter right now. And uh, that's when I realized as I got off stage that my career in theater had just ended or was just to end, and I was going to devote myself full-time to my writing. Wow. Uh, we have a, a listener question, a uh, listener submitted. It's uh, Mr. Articulate on the Marvel Masterworks forums. He wanted to ask, what shows and roles did you have at the Organic Theater Company in Chicago? Um, again, they weren't very large. Uh, in fact, uh, I got a fairly funny story. I, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I took the place of an, of an actor who was in Bloody Best. Uh, I played several ensemble things, but I also played um, this character, Cap- uh, Captain Von Anders, in the uh, first scene. He's the head of the merchant ship that has just been taken by the pirates, 
and his job is basically to get hung up by his heels and then I would give a dramatic speech saying you may kill me now but my words my words they shall live <laughs> and another actor would draw a fake knife across my throat and I would release the blood bag and he would bleed all over the place and I would die well at one point uh, my friend and co-writer on this uh, William J. Norris um was playing the part of that pirate and so there i was hanging upside down and saying you may kill me now but my words my words they shall live instead of slicing he starts sawing on my throat saying your words you fat turkey your words and so i had to pretend that um, my laughter was death rose and uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, uh that was part of my contact with the organic theater Okay. Um, a, another uh, question. This one's from DJ Way. He wanted to ask, uh, or just talk about Grimjack, and he wanted to say, you and uh, Truman were doing Grim and Gritty before it came into vogue. How did you feel about how it seemed to take over the whole medium in the wake of Watchmen and Dark Knight? Um, well, first of all, I think uh, uh, Grim and Gritty was almost coined for uh, for Grimjack. I had written a proposal for, uh, originally Grimjack was going to be um, prose. It was going to be short stories and stuff like that. And I had written a slightly different version of Grimjack. And then I, because I was around the first comics office so much, I knew that they were looking for more properties. So I thought, well, okay, I can adapt Grimjack into what they're doing. They had, uh, they had already created the, the city of Sinisher. So I said, well, I'll adapt Grimjack to that and, uh, and see if I can sell them on it. Um, but at the time, when they were evaluating it, um, they said, we really like uh, The notes on it said, we really like this. We really like to do it. But the, the character's older. You know, like, uh, he's so grim, so gritty. So um, I think that's part of where you know, that grim and gritty notion first showed up. As far as it extending throughout the rest of, um, of uh, the industry, I I, I don't know if we had that influence or whether or not it was just something in the air at the time. You know, um, people trying to rethink comics. You know, it wasn't, you know, the idea that it wasn't just a, um, a medium for, like, children's stories, that you could do serious work on it. And people had been. You know, um, I remember Daniel O'Neill's uh, and Neil Adams on, on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and they were, that taught me that you could do uh, you could take serious topics and write comic book stories around them. So, so it was a very exciting time. For sure. Um, DJ Way also says that uh, Grimjack is one of his favorite independents of the 80s and wanted to know if there's any chance we'll see him again. I do have a story in mind. Um, it, it's taken me a while to, uh, to bring it all together. Uh, <laughs> also because I'm working on other projects and that takes time away from this but I'm hoping you know like, by the end of the year first of the year you know, to go back at it and take a look at it if I can really pull the plot together then I'll talk to uh, Tim Truman and Mike Gold see if we can get the band back together get financing and, uh, and do something about it so yeah I'd like to do more Grimjack uh, same, same person had a lot of questions uh, you wanted to know how important was your theater background and your approach to comics and did it give you any certain skills and insights that you don't see in traditional comics writers I think so uh, among other things I got very used to expressing characterization through dialogue I, um, I understood about give and take in terms of 
of dialogue. Um, also, um, from uh, such writers as Shakespeare, I understood, I, I mean, from doing it, I understood how you weave the theme into the plot so that the, so that the two are, are, are intertwined. I understood uh, the dramatic structure uh, almost you know, like by osmosis, because uh, of course it was that so much part of theater, but, uh, and I knew that as a director, as a writer, as an actor, um, and then also as I was saying before, um, I studied uh, improvisational theater with um, with Del Close at Second City, and uh, that really opened up my mind to a lot of different ways. Uh, of, of choosing different things to do, uh, of of uh, always using the positive, you know, like, um, never uh, never creating a uh, conflict just for the sake of conflict. It's called yes and, and mm-hmm. you, uh, so you accept what's said and then you move on from there. So so it's not just about argument; it's about building uh, uh, the scene and the character. So yeah, I um, I don't know if I would be the the writer that I am without having done theater. Okay. Uh, kind of picking up from that, but looking at it from the other perspective, is there something about comic scripting that is intrinsically different than writing prose or for the screen or the stage? Um, I think it's closer to, um, to writing for the screen in many ways. I mean, if you compare a um, comic book script with a screenplay, they are remarkably similar. Um, there's also uh, similarities between that and plays, but um, you don't have quite as much room uh, in in comics as you do even with plays. In terms of, of uh, if there's anything in terms of prose that it's more like, um, it might be a short story rather than, than a novel. Um, uh, short stories, I think, can adapt better to comics, but at the same time, it's uh, you don't have quite all the uh, freedom that uh, that prose gives you. Mm-hmm. But then again, you uh, you've got artists, you know, who are conveying a lot of things as well. You, that's something else I think the theater gave me was the understanding of how to collaborate. Uh, in theater, it's not just you. You know, even if you're the actor, even if you're the lead actor, uh, it's a matter of. You have to work as part of a team, and in comics, that's very much true as well. You're not just um, the only uh, main part. The artist matters a great deal, obviously. You know, but so does the letterer and the inker and the colorist. You know, like um, all of it coming together uh, is very important. Absolutely. Uh, a question from Garuda, which kind of dovetails into that, is with regards to some of the artists you've worked with throughout your career, who were some of the artists that you had maybe the best working relationship or you think really brought your your work to uh, to the page in a most fully realized manner? Well, I've been very lucky in terms of the people that I've worked with uh, in, uh, in comics. Um, for instance... Um, uh, I mean, Lennon Del Sol was my first artist, on, uh, and we worked together on Star Slayer. And then Tim Truman came in on Grimjack. Now, uh, Tim, uh, they were looking at, at other artists before they discovered Tim as well, and some of them did samples, and none of them particularly struck me as right. Tim was, um, uh, they had seen his samples, they were intrigued with him, and they said, well, 
look, we can give you two or three fill-in issues on warp, which would be more pages, or we got this thing called called Grimjack, uh, which right now is just going to be some backup features. And Tim read what I had written in terms of the thing. He says, give me the Merc, because <laughs> you know, that was right up his alley. Um, but there's so many artists um, that I've worked with over the year, uh, Tom Mandrake, both on Grimjack and Firestorm and, uh, and Spectre and Martian Manhunter, Jan Dersma on so many of the uh, Star Slayer uh, titles that we did in addition to other things. Um, I've, been, I've been very, very lucky with, uh, with the artists that I've worked with. And uh, each one of them has brought something different. In fact, every time I start working with an artist, um, I spend some time, it usually takes about two or three issues for me to get a feel for what the artist really does well, and I try to write to that, you know, uh, to slant the story so that I give them what works best for them. Well, I guess that speaks to the collaborative nature that you learn from your time in the theater as well, correct? Yes, although uh, occasionally uh, I've run afoul of a few uh, uh, artists. I, I, one of the Aquaman villains I did um, on pages two and three was a double-page spread uh, uh, in which we were showing, showing the sinking of San Diego and uh, ships in the harbor, like battleships and aircraft carriers, being drawn into uh, the, uh, the whirlpool, the, the chasm, and uh, and I had asked for all that, and in the margins, the uh, the penciler had had uh, added, John Ostrander must die. <laughs> oh God! I guess that's a very so difficult they, thing to do. I, I guess they held it against me after that, but because they're spectacular pages, but that's funny. Uh, maybe not so funny, but it's definitely interesting. Um, how did your eventual kind of move to DC happen? Was it following gold? Uh, somewhat. Uh, before that time, I was also talking with uh, Robert Greenberger at different uh, conventions and stuff, and uh, he and I had grown a rapport, and uh, uh, so he was interested in my doing something over at DC, and then Mike went over and um, one of his assignments was to do the, uh, the follow-up to Crisis on Infinite Earths, and they wanted it to be actually rather different, but it would be the first company-wide crossover following uh, Crisis. So, and he brought me in as the plotter. Um, I, was, uh, uh, I was new, so I, they didn't want me to dialogue it as well. They wanted uh, someone who knew the characters, uh, in this case, Len Wein, who did a wonderful job in terms of dialoguing um, uh, my scripts as well, or my plots. And, um, and of course, they also brought, they managed to get John Byrne in to, uh, to draw it all. So, yeah, that made for a pretty successful book. It's kind of an interesting way of, you know, that's your, your entrance in in, uh, in, a, in a quite a prominent fashion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it was also a place um, Bob Greenberger and I had already uh, started working on Suicide Squad, and Mike had suggested that we debut them in Legends so that uh, so we'd get the widest uh, possible audience to take a look at it before we went off into our own book. 
Now, what was that kind of creation process like? And it's interesting, too, because the Suicide Squad does feel a little different uh, in Legends than in their own series. So, I mean, where does that kind of come from? Was it that just because it was being scripted by Len Wein, or...? It might be a touch of that. Also, uh, the Squad didn't usually deal with uh, world-challenging uh, menaces, um, um, in the uh, in the book, you know, we're basically doing espionage stories, and while they might have a large influence on the uh, on the world, you know, like they don't, the world's survival doesn't usually depend on that. Um, and yes, I suppose somewhat, you know, I, uh, I was able to script the characters myself and deepen the characterizations. I hope uh, quite a bit more. Um, but Len did well. Did well. Len did great with what, uh, uh, with what, with what he was given at the time. You know, I mean, Len himself is a legend in the uh, in the industry. So, uh, so I I got no complaints there. Oh, absolutely. Um, where did Amanda Waller come from for you? Uh, I was doing some thinking about that recently and saying, okay. Where did Amanda come from? Um, I knew that for the uh, squad I needed, I, I wanted a um, person who was in charge, you know, someone who had to be tough. But I also wanted it to be somebody who you hadn't, uh, uh, the type of which you hadn't seen before. There weren't many African-American uh, big league characters at that point in comics. So I said, well, okay, we'll do that. They weren't female either. So I said, well, okay, we're going we're gonna to do that. Um, and I wanted her to be older. I wanted her to not look like your typical uh, superhero, and that, and I wanted her not to have any superpowers other than her own attitude and will. Uh, so that all partly uh, fed into it. But also recently, I was thinking about it, and in the past year, I realized that actually my paternal grandmother figures into it as well. Um, uh, because she was an older woman, she was stout, and um, she could fix me with a glance that would pin me to the wall. <laughs> so uh, I knew she loved me. I'm not sure she always liked me. So um, uh, I think there's a lot of Grammy O in, in Amanda Waller as well, which might have a, a bit appalled Grammy O, but... Um, I was able to tell that story to Viola Davis as well after the uh, movie opened. What did you think of the... Um, well, obviously there's been a lot of different portrayals of that character in different medias. What have been some of your favorites? Well, uh, I, right now I would, la uh, I would list Viola Davis at the top. You know, um, in, in fact, when they were casting I, and she was announced as being cast as Amanda, I said because I knew her work I said oh, oh this is going to be good this is going to be good uh, I was very excited about it and then when I saw the first trailer in which she was in it I went oh my god she looks like Amanda she sounds like Amanda she's got Amanda's attitude and some of the lines she was saying in the middle of it could have been taken straight from the comics so so yeah I was really excited by it but um, there are so many other actresses who all of whom brought something uh, of themselves um to the part, and and it's like seeing uh, through through a different lens what they see in the character, what the uh, what the writer for that particular type of story sees, 
and, and what they need. So uh, to me, it was always Amanda, but you know, get interesting versions. Oh, for sure. Yeah, she's a very dynamic character, too. Yeah. Um, with regards to Suicide Squad, because I guess that's kind of one of the, the big topics of your career, um, is it still the, the, the thing you end up signing the most? Um, hard to say. Uh, to me, in the conventions, autographs? Yeah. Yeah, um, I do. Certainly lately, I've been signing um, a lot of Squad, but I've signed a lot of uh, Grimjacks. I, mm-hmm. uh, I've signed. Uh, I don't think there's a single one of my books that I that hasn't come across uh, my desk when when I'm signing things. I sign a lot of Wastelands, uh, which which is interesting to me as well. Um, but yeah, there's so many. Uh, uh, usually at, at any convention, there's a there's a wide. A variety of, of of my work. I mean, I get to see just how many, you know, like, uh, I get reminded of just how many stories I, <laughs> I've written. One of my jokes is that I've deforested small sections of the planet with my output. So, um, and I get to see a lot of it. Sometimes they'll bring something to me and I'll go, did I write that? And they'll look at it and go, oh, yep, yep, yeah, I did. <laughs> and, or I'll see something and I go, oh, I haven't seen this in a long time. And I'll have to stop and page through it just to remind myself about it. So that's always interesting. Um, yes, your past can come up to haunt you. Uh, yeah. I remember at one convention, I was on a panel, um, uh, and uh, one of the questions from the audience was uh, if there was one issue of something that you could grab all the copies of them and burn them, what would it be? <laughs> and so, and so, I named something. I certainly did. I didn't. Did I have something? You bet I did. But then somebody, there was this guy sitting in the front row, and he looked stricken. And he said, "But that's my favorite issue." <laughs> and, I, so I swore I will never do that again. You know, uh, just reminds me that every comic is somebody's favorite. Absolutely. That's funny, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you have a favorite character to write in the 80s squad? Oh, geez. You know, uh, uh, well, certainly, you know, um, I have always loved writing Amanda. Um, and one of the things that I discover every time that I go away and come back, uh, you're always concerned whether or not you're going to be able to capture the voice of a certain character again, you know, after having been away for so long. Mm-hmm. And um, and Amanda just comes back every time. It's like, you know, I don't even have to think about it. I just start writing her and out her dialogue comes. And it's like her attitude is, well, I've been right here. Where you been? <laughs> Well, actually, that kind of dovetails into the question: What was it like coming back and writing the Suicide Squad special, War Crimes? That was very interesting um, because, yes, I got to work with some of uh, the characters that I've always played with, like Deadshot, like uh, Captain Boomerang, but also some characters that I didn't, like uh, like Harley Quinn. Um, also, I was, while it was a longer than normal single issue, it was at the same time as one story. It was complete in that one issue, you know, and a lot of it, and yes, there were many Suicide Squad issues that I did in single issues, but it was interesting this time again to do it as a single issue, a story complete into itself. 
And what was it like kind of tapping into, you know, Harley Quinn's voice? Because obviously she's a very prominent new, newer member of the squad who wasn't part of the original 80s version. She was a lot of fun to play with. You know, like, uh, she really was. I, you know, uh, uh, from her, too, you know, like lines would just come out. Like, uh, like when she's surprised by uh, the character Shado at one point gets uh, kicked across the, uh, the room, and she goes, ooh, you know, you know martial arts. Cool. And then she smiles and says, I know crazy. <laughs> So, uh, and that to me pretty much summed up my my take on on Harley. What was where did you find you were pulling inspiration from for the character? Like, was it which iteration of the character that you'd seen kind of informed how you took on the character? I I, I can't cite any one of them. I mean, certainly, you know, like what I'd seen in the uh, in the pre uh, in the trailers of Harley was also um, in it as well. Yeah, and I'll be honest. I wanted uh, uh, my version of Harley to um, to echo what I was seeing on the trailer, because I figured, well, people who, who are going to be drawn to the special are maybe people who have only seen the movies. So I wanted them to feel somewhat at home there. Hmm. Okay. Uh, another question. Question from a listener. Um, this is from Green Meerkat asked. Uh, during your Suicide Squad run, at one point you ditched the costumes and had them dress in more grounded and realistic attire. How did this come about, and why did it go this way? And what was the reaction to it by both DC and the fans at the time? Well, uh, at the time, uh, I mean, when you're on a long run with a, with a series, and I tend to do long runs uh, if I can, uh, you need to do something to shake things up every so often, if only to keep yourself interested. Now, it seemed to me that if uh, the squad was a covert action group, then getting dressed up in these scarce costumes would be, you know, a kind of telltale mm-hmm. and drawing attention to yourself. So I thought, well, let's make them more realistic that way. In that they they don't wear their costumes; they you know they do this stuff without it. But looking back on it, um, I think maybe that was that was a mistake. Um, I think we lost some readers that way. Um, they started to fall away, and um, it—they just didn't seem as vibrant as mm. they did. So, while I think there were certainly reasons and to do it, I think in retrospect, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. Do you think a move like that actually would have played better? later on in, in kind of in comics like at that point it may not have kind of been what people were ready for but it feels like at some point in the 90s and 2000s that would have been more uh, readily accepted maybe maybe you know, it's hard for me to say you know, but uh, you got to remember when you're dealing with comics with uh, with with uh, metahumans you know, that's part of you know, particularly if they're known characters you know, mm. and that's sort of what you got to deal with you know, that should be part and parcel of it. If you don't want to use the costumes, then why are you doing the characters? That's a good point. When you were first putting together the squad, what led you to use the characters that you did? Because it's definitely an eclectic mix. Yeah, um, it, that largely came from uh, conversations with me and Bob Greenberger. At first, um, I mean, there are certain characters that I knew I wanted to use, like Deadshot. Um, 
but I really wanted characters that weren't going to be used by other books, uh, even if, uh, well, say Captain Boomerang, even though he was a, uh, a known, a well-known uh, part of Flash's rogues gallery. At that point, uh, the Flash people weren't using the rogues gallery, so he could just stick with us. And I wanted characters that I would ha a have some control on, so that I could play with the characters a little bit, delve into them a little bit more, add things to them, and in some cases, just kill off. <laughs> you know, because uh, because I think that was part and parcel of the interest in Squad was that yeah, we could kill characters off, and we didn't, and this way we didn't have to check with other people. So I liked using the B, C, and even D list characters to see, A, what, what could I do with them? What, what could I bring to them? How could I add another layer or two to them? And then also, if I wanted them dead, there would be a problem with it. So um, Bob Greenberger and I hashed out who would be on the team. And um, Bob was one who's, who insisted that we bring more heroes on board. He said, you, you need them in order to help control the villains. And first, I just wanted to make it an all-villain group. But I really appreciated the fact that I could use these, uh, some of these different characters, like, like Nightshade, like, uh, like Bronze Tiger, mm -hmm. and so on. So uh, uh, that added to the mix. And then, of course, we just kept on building it because we gave them a support team, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, people who kept the uh, the mechanics up and going. We had uh, uh, support characters there. We had support characters in the prison. So we had, we had a very large cast. Absolutely. Were there any characters who were kind of off-limits for you to use at first? I don't know if they were off-limits by DC, but they were off-limits maybe by me. I didn't want to use the Joker. Um, there were too many strings Hmm. being held on the Joker and also the bad office didn't want him used that often they felt he'd been overused so they were very stingy about how they were going to let him be be used in it um, and also I wasn't quite sure whether he would fit within what I was wanting to do so um, I tended I, I simply tended to avoid you know the more A-list villains I think the most the, the biggest name uh, would probably be the Penguin and that's because I had already done a um, prestige book of the Penguin when one of the Batman things were coming out. And I enjoyed working with the character until I understood him. So we were able to use him for about three, three or four issues. Um, what can you tell us? This is actually a listener question. Uh, what can you tell us about the behind the scenes development for the creation of Oracle? And did it start from a desire to right the wrong of the killing joke? Yes. Uh, to be blunt. Um, my late wife, Kim Yale, and I, uh, Kim was working on the squad with me by that point. Um, first of all, let me say, I have tremendous respect for, for Alan Moore. Um, I think that, uh, uh, and Brian Bolland, you know, uh, two of the absolute best in the industry, you know, and, uh, uh, and if you really, you, you have to read Brian, you know, if you uh, and Alan, if you want to know what's going on at the top of the industry, so I just had I've had tremendous respect for him, but I did not care for the killing joke. 
um, I felt the treatment of Barbara in it was not right. Uh, Kim and I both felt that way, you know, that uh, she goes giggling almost to the to the front door of the of the apartment she shares with her with her dad. There's no people in the in the door. There's no chains on the door. And she just opens it, you know, like, this is Gotham City. You know, he's he's the commissioner of police. Mm. They they just aren't gonna do that. And then uh and then the Joker probably shoots her and from the angle of the bullet, um she should have been dead. Or at the very least from sepsis. And then later on, you know, like, we see that she's been beaten up when she's in the hospital. And um, and I think the implication is that she was raped and then photographed. Um, there are those who have worked on the book who says, no, she wasn't raped. But I, to me, the implication is, is clear that she had been. Uh, Kim and I both felt that that was not the way to treat the character. So we asked if we could have her. And um, the bad office said, yeah, sure, fine. Uh, we've got no interest in using her again. So we took her, again, it fulfilled that, um, that element of being able to control the character. And then we decided to uh, go into her history. You know, because I, um, uh, I like playing with continuity. And we made it so, uh, we knew that she had been very good with uh, computers, that she was uh, very knowledgeable with them. So we said, okay, we'll remake her in such a way that if we do this right, uh, she'll be very useful to the rest of the DC universe and the other writers will want to use her because if you need to find out something um, and you don't want to spend a lot of plot time on it, well, you just have your character get in touch with Oracle, who's mm. Barbara Gordon. Uh, also, we were very insistent on um, that there would be a repercussion uh, from her being shot like that, and that's that she was crippled and that she was in a wheelchair. And we didn't want her magically healed. We wanted uh, to show her in the wheelchair and that she was still a strong person, that she was a hero. And um, uh, because she had lost the use of her legs, didn't make her any less of a hero. In fact, if anything, I think, uh, I think that Barbara was more of a hero as Oracle than, than she really was as Batgirl. So that's basically sort of the background on, on uh, how we created Oracle. Mm-hmm. We also had fun too because we introduced her gradually. You know, um, uh, we brought her on as Oracle, but only through a computer screen. It wasn't until later on that the readers finally find out that yes, she is in fact Barbara Gordon. Was there any reluctance at all from DC that you were kind of fixing? Or at least, as you said, kind of writing a wrong that had been done to her? Or was there not a lot of, you know, anything? They're just kind of like, yeah, that's fine. We have no plans. Do what you want. Yeah, basically more, more of the latter. Also an interest in seeing uh, what would happen. And the, and the idea that, uh, that the character uh, would then uh, be able to work in the DCU uh, and be... Uh, and be used by other people in the DCU and then went into her own book, Birds of Prey, as well. So she became, in many ways, I think, a more popular and successful character as Oracle than she had been as uh, as Batgirl. Absolutely. I think a lot of people would probably agree with that. 
Um, you mentioned uh, your uh, your late wife. What did she bring to your collaborations? What was that relationship like when you guys worked together? Um, well, I, I knew that she wanted to write, and uh, uh, Kim, in many ways, is a, was a more careful writer than I was, a finer writer. I'm I'm very into storytelling. I want to know, yeah, then what happened? That's sort of the thing that I do. I'm very good with plot and structure, but she also brought her own things to the characters. For instance, one of the things that Kim brought in our last story together uh, was when we did Oracle Year One, and Kim was very insistent that we take one page when Barbara was getting out of the hospital and show for the entire page of how difficult it was just to get out of the wheelchair and into the back seat of a car. And we and she wanted us to use each step so that we could impress upon people that it's that something as simple for for us normal body people to get into a car was very difficult for Barbara. And uh and that said a lot about her character and that was, you know, straight from Kim. Hmm. It's a great character beat though. Yeah. Um, a question from uh, Dilo Tempio was, uh, religion and faith seem to be a re- reoccurring topic in your books. Grimjack, Suicide Squad, Firestorm, and the Spectre all feature characters exploring their belief structures. Could you explore your interest in this topic? Is there an event in your life that inspired this exploration, and has writing about it brought about any conclusions? Well, uh, I, start, uh, I was brought up Roman Catholic, uh, and, uh, and there was a point for, oh, my freshman year in high school when I thought I wanted to be a priest and I went to the seminary or rather the preparatory seminary uh, the high school version of it you know um, and uh, then I made two discoveries uh, <laughs> about halfway through that year one of them was girls <laughs> and um, and dating was not something that you were allowed to do at the uh, seminary and uh, then the other one was that my uh, vocation probably came from an overdose of watching Going My Way. Actually, the TV series rather than the movies. Um, so, uh, because I was very taken with the idea and sort of the romance of being a priest. And also for many uh, Catholic boys, particularly in my era, well, you at least toy with it at, at some point with the idea of, well, could I be a priest? Would I want to be a priest? So, uh, so I played with that. But as a result, you know, um, certainly one of the things that comes up from Catholicism, and uh, I also went to Jesuit high schools and, and a college, and, uh, and the question there of not just faith, but also theology, you know, and um, what is your faith? What, what faith have you chosen as opposed to the faith that you have been given? The whole notion of what is sin, which certainly is prominent in the um, Catholic Church, but then also the idea of forgiveness and redemption. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are all parts of uh, that matrix. As I I was... um, (coughs) I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, uh, And... um, so I took that with me a long ways, but these days I'm actually more of an an agnostic. <laughs> I've sort of passed through that and beyond. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's the right way for anybody else to be, 
but um, these days I say I'm sort of an agnostic in general and an atheist in specifics. Uh, uh, I don't believe in a, you know, a given belief system, be it Catholic, Baptist, uh, Hindu, paganism, whatever you want. I, I love the stories, and I, I think that they're important. I, I have a great respect for the Bible and for the stories that it tells. You know, a lot of our civilization, Western civilization, is based on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in terms of believing that, you know, right now, or, uh, or believing it as anything more than allegory, uh, I can't say I do. Okay. Actually, um, a comment, like you've answered it already, but another uh, another listener had basically um, mentioned that the power of redemption seems to be a constant theme in your work. Uh, so they also wanted to know if you were religious or spiritual and how it informed your work, and you've kind of answered that. Yeah, um, I, do, um, I think you can believe in redemption without necessarily uh, believing in any given religion. I think there are such things as sin, uh, not necessarily against God, but yeah, certainly against uh, uh, the way that we are mm-hmm. as people, um, and and we're all capable of it. You know, uh, we're capable of, of, of we have dark sides and light sides in us, and I'm very aware of my own. Uh, and those things are at play, and they are a lot in terms of how I understand characterizations. I don't know as I believe in uh, uh, all good or all evil characters. I think uh, everyone is a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what I try to dramatize a lot. uh, Even my best characters have flaws in them. and Even my worst characters have virtues. Which of your main characters do you think most closely reflects your own personal beliefs and convictions? It's hard to say uh, because uh, I I use them so often in uh, uh, in my writing. I think they're constant in my writing. Um, going back, I mean, Grimjack is uh, is a very good example of it. You know, I, uh, one of my original thoughts on it was, how do you make a moral a moral choice in an amoral world? Uh, certainly, the questions of uh, of redemption, uh, of sin, of punishment and forgiveness uh, echo uh, uh, throughout the specter. Uh, mm. So they're all, uh, uh, it just goes through all, throughout my entire work, I think. You've written a lot of morally ambiguous and conflicted characters. Were you ever surprised by the way the audience responded to them? Sometimes. Um, for instance, there was one villain, um, in uh, in Suicide Squad, uh, his name was uh, uh, William Heller, and his character was uh, he created a superhero persona for himself called called William Hell. But the guy was a supremacist, a racist, so he was using the idea of being this superhero to basically um, uh, under uh, underscore what he felt was the. Um, uh, problems with other lesser races, and so in order to to write that character, I had to go into myself and find out, okay, where's the racist side of me? Because 
if you're going to write that kind of character, that character doesn't believe they're, they're a villain. They believe that they are right and that their actions come from that, however much the rest of us might say, no, 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 I don't think so. But uh, for us, uh, for, for him, he does believe that he, what he's doing is right. So I define those aspects within myself. And that can be very painful. That can be very disturbing. Oh, absolutely. Um, with regards to Deadshot, um, uh, another listener question was, where would you have taken the character of Deadshot if you had been able to continue to chronicle his exploits? Um, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, Floyd Lawton, I think, is almost inherently damaged. I, I got to return to him in a fill-in issue of Secret Six, where uh, where I explored a little bit more of his psyche and the fact that there was this, he was finding this desire within himself to just shoot and kill everybody, you know, like, uh, uh, and he didn't. But that urge was was within him. Um, I don't know if that can be cured. Hmm. You know. Uh, uh, unless he had a, a St. Paul-like epiphany on the road to Damascus, I don't see how you know, he would really change. What were the origins of your Spectre series? Uh, uh, Tom Mandrick and I had been doing Firestorm together, and I decided that I would leave with issue 100. At the time, they thought that maybe they would continue the book with Tom and another writer, but then the they decided, no, we're going to end it with 100. Uh, a lot of the people who are reading it right now seem to be there because of John. And it's always a risk when you change a book, when you change a team in the book, you're going to lose some people and you hope that you're going to gain more than enough by the change. Evidently, they felt it was time to give Firestorm a rest for a while. So um, Tom was available, and I love working with Tom. And so both of us were big fans of the Spectre. And uh, he had been done only about two years before that. And when we first asked for him, they said, well, no, it's too recent. Uh, we want to let him rest for a while. But we kept on pressing. And uh, they, people told us, well, look, the Spectre is so powerful. You either have to downgrade his powers or you're going to start repeating yourself and be boring within six issues. And we said, no, you don't. We know how to do it. Give him to us, and we were so sure of it, and so so uh, I guess sure of ourselves that uh, they finally conceded and let us do it. And for us, uh, the secret was not in downgrading the specter's powers, because what the specter does—that's the visual iconography that should be there in the book. If you're going to read the Spectre, it's because of the things that the Spectre can do, these really interesting visual things. Now, the, we felt the problem wasn't the Spectre. You know, our focus was on Jim Corrigan. Mm -hmm. and, um, and our understanding of Corrigan simply went back to the fact, that, well, first of all, we felt he was not alive. He, he was dead and had been dead since he was first killed in the 30s. And back then, he was a plainclothes hard-nosed detective and um, 
go back and read some of the histories, uh, uh, see some of the movies from back then about these uh, 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 plainclothes police detectives. Uh, uh, they were a tough bunch. Yeah, uh, read some of the early Dick Tracy's. You know, when when Tracy, yeah, you know, he'll shoot you as soon as talk to you. So um, we decided we would model Corgan on that. You know, like we wanted Corgan to be a strong character, and it became the whole question of um, as the specter. You know, he has almost the um, the powers of a god, but he has a mortal man's perspective on how to use them and what to use them for. And a lot of, so this, the entire run, uh, our run on the Spectre became about uh, Corrigan's, even after death, you know, as he was, growing and changing. And um, I'm very grateful that DC at the end gave us enough warning that the book was gonna be uh, ended and that, uh, so we had time to arrange what we were doing. And then also they let us take the ending that we wanted to do, which was uh, Corrigan moving on, because that way it gave the entire run, it made it all one story about Corrigan's, uh, who Corrigan was and how Corrigan changed. Mm -hmm. Um, This is from a listener. Uh, The Spectre series featured cameos of characters set aside in the Vertigo line, such as Lucien and the American Scream. Did you have to get permission to use those characters, or was DC trying to explore how to incorporate the Vertigo line into its mainstream? No, we very very much had to get uh, uh, permission. We had to show uh, the plots and everything else that we're doing to the editors of those books um, uh, uh, if we wanted to use them. So, um, so no, no, we were we were held to account. Do you think we'll ever get the the, the full run of those Spectre books? Will ever be recollected in a, in a trade format? I would love it if they did. You know, I, uh, I think there's a value in doing it. Um, uh, I think we'd be more likely to do it if they were going to make a Spectre movie, and and uh, I would love to see that because, again, you know, what we did was just so visual. Absolutely no, it ab- like I absolutely agree. Like I remember reading those books when I was much younger, and being like, "Whoa, <laughs> this stuff! This stuff's very out there." Yeah, I mean, our, our, one of our first stunts on it was that uh, uh, Jim Corgan sees a drive-by shooting, um, and there's this uh, car full of punks uh, uh, laughing as they uh, as they drive away real fast, and all of a sudden, this giant specter head comes up through the middle of the street and his jaw opens and he swallows the car. You know, I mean, that's, that's just full-time great. Uh, this is an, another question from Green Meerkat. He asked, uh, what led you to bring in the character of Grant Morrison from Animal Man as the writer and kill him? And what prompted, uh, what prompted okay. this to happen and did you ever hear anything from Grant about it? Uh, not directly from Grant. Um, I get the impression he wasn't too happy. I will say that um, we never called him Grant Morrison. We called him. We called that character the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, we did it because Grant wrote himself into the end of Animal Man, and um, that made him a DC character, a DC property. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, I'll set him free. <laughs> so I can have a little bit of fun and poke some fun at somebody else. It was maybe a little mean-spirited, 
Right. So, again, in retrospect, would I do it? Uh, maybe not. You know. Yeah. Uh, but it was. I thought it was pretty funny at the time. I still think it's funny, I'll be honest. <laughs> uh, a question from DJ Way is, uh, how would uh, Qatar Hall respond to the recent U.S. election? Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if he would abandon the planet. Uh, <laughs> it, would, it would confuse him, I would think. You know, um, here we have all these possibilities. Um and he was very impressed with our form of government. But then if if he held the same concerns that I do, he would wonder whether or not we'd taken leave of our senses. Hmm. But that would be my version. Gotcha. Guitar Hall. <laughs> Another writer might not have the same one. Um, a question from D'Lo Tempio. Uh, what was the impetus for your short run in Detective Comics featuring the demon Batman? It uh, seemed to uh, come before other quasi-satanic antiheroes like Spawn. Do you feel that short series influenced the antiheroes who followed it? And P.S. The fate of Robin is still genuinely disturbing decades later. Um, I uh, uh, I had an idea for a different version of Batman, you know, like um, almost like an Elseworlds Batman, where where his origin wasn't uh, from the. Uh, uh, the way that we know it. Uh, also, the the thought in my head was, well, okay, if people know that Batman exists within the DC universe, or there's words of him that exist, well, what do they think of him? Uh, where, what do they think of his origins? And so I had an artist within that, an artist-writer, uh, create a, uh, a comic book within the comic book of, um, of Batman's origins and what he really was. Um, and it was fun. You know, uh, that w- we had two different artists on it, and I was determined to split up the pages overall throughout the three issues into uh, so that each artist had half of the pages. And um, and I will admit, Danny O'Neill, my uh, my editor at the time, told me later on that while he trusted me, he really didn't know for sure that I could actually bring both halves of the story together by the end and then he, and he said and, and then you did <laughs> so I'm very proud of those, of those three issues uh, I, and then we, when we had Dick Sprang do the covers oh my god how much better can you get than that mm-hmm. uh, what's your favorite genre to write and why oh it's hard to say um, I enjoy them all um, somebody yeah, I, I think my answer to this is the same as um what, what character is your favorite and generally it's whatever one I'm working on right now it's whatever genre I'm working in right now mm-hmm. uh, having a lot of different genres enables you to um, to skip around and try different things so I, I enjoy that a lot uh, is there a series you, that you feel you left too early and would you go back today if you were offered the chance to do so um Jan Dersman and I both feel that doing Star Wars Legacy, um, we could have used another year on that. Mm. You know, um, uh, I, I really wish that they hadn't canceled it when they did. We did get a six-issue miniseries to try to wrap it all up. But have, first of all, if we had known earlier that they were going to uh, end the series, you know, we might have been able to do a better job of wrapping it up. 
but I mean, if you go back and read the six-issue miniseries, while while it's good and I'm proud of it, you can see storylines in there that we could have extended a whole lot and played with a lot more. So yeah, that's what I. Uh, that's perhaps the main series that I wish I could have done a little bit differently at the end. How did it kind of come about that you got to work on all those Star Wars books? I mean, and what was that like for you to be able to do that? Were you a big fan of the Star Wars universe before you started writing it? I was a big fan of the Star Wars universe before the first movie came out. I had come across uh, the novelization for Star Wars uh, at my uh, comic book dealers, and this is before the, um, what's now known as A New Hope, as episode four came out. So I thought it looked interesting, the cover. I read the back, but I said, hmm, okay. So I, I bought it, I took it home, I read it. And I said, well, this could be kind of cool. If they can get about half of what's in the book on the screen, this could be really interesting. And of course, then I went to see it, and they did like 200% of what was in the book on the screen. Uh, my jaw just dropped. So I was a fan from way back then. I got into it because my friend and buddy and sometimes brother, Tim Truman, uh, was writing Star Wars at that point. And he had to go away to work on a special project, so they had room for a, uh, for a four-issue fill-in. And uh, Tim suggested that I do it. I, I very worked some with, with uh, Dark Horse, so they, so they knew, knew I was a good writer. And um, I got to work with Jan Dersma, who I had known, but and had only worked with very little up until that point, but I knew Jan very well. So um, we were brought in, and we figured, okay, we may only get these four issues, so we're going to do our Star Wars, our best Star Wars that we can possibly do. And uh, as big a fan of Star Wars as I am, Jan was infinitely greater. You know, I, I mean, the things she knew in terms of the details and the background and all the rest of it was, you know, just amazing. So, um, and we decided a couple things. First of all, we were going to introduce our own characters. That way we wouldn't trip over continuity. And so we introduced the character of Quinlan Voss. And uh, we used some of the established DC, or, uh, Star Wars characters uh, as support characters so that it felt like Star Wars. But basically we had our own uh major characters and um, so we did that and I told Dark Horse at the time Dark Horse was sort of bringing in different writer artist teams um, and, and the book was sort of an, an anthology and I told them look whether it's me and Jan or some other team you really should have one regular team working here that way you can create a continuity of your own and the uh, and the readers will be assured of a certain level of quality because they'll know who uh, who your team is. And I told them also, you should use your own characters because A, that way you don't uh, trip over continuity, which was getting very tangled at that point. And I said, and B, you'll have stories that uh, the Star Wars fans can get only in the comics. These are the characters that they can only find if they, if they become popular there in your comics. <laughs> and eventually they, they agreed with me and they put Jan and me in full time. It's pretty exciting to be able to go from being a fan of something to kind of shepherding it forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's playing George Lucas' sandbox. You know, I like uh and I was very pleased and honored. Uh, George Lucas had a very good attitude towards uh, towards the people doing 
our kind of work, not just us, but also people doing the games and the books and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Basically, he gave us freedom to go ahead and develop it, so long as it remained Star Wars. He, we were also warned that if he ever decided to go back and do more Star Wars himself, he would not uh, feel constrained to follow what we had done. <clears throat> he would go off and do whatever he felt like, and that was fine because that was his property. And so I knew that going in. But we had a lot of freedom. We we had to get everything by uh, Lucas Film Licensing, which was the, um, s- sort of the editors in chief um, of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And but there too, Jan and I, uh, uh, we soon developed this attitude or this this rapport with them, and they knew that we knew Star Wars, that we loved Star Wars, that we understood Star Wars, and and the books that we were going to do would be very much in that. So they they learned to trust us very, very quickly and gave us a lot of room to do things in the books. Um, I know we're, we have to wrap up soon, but uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about uh, the creation of the series The Kents. Uh, uh, that was um, what the uh, originally it was going to be about Dead Shot's family, Floyd Lawton. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I, some of the characters weren't going to be that ple- you know be be pleasant. So I said, well, okay, I know Lawton, uh, so I figured you know I would get a chance to play with that. I, uh, um, my wife Kimia was a big Western fan and taught me to appreciate it. So I had an idea of doing a historical Western, um, uh, one that would uh, deal with some real historical events, but sort of help redefine what a Western could be. Um, so I was talking with Pete Tomasi, who was, uh, who was an editor at DC at the time, and, uh, and one of my editors, and Pete uh, said, okay, what else have you got? You're, what are you working on? And I told him, well, I got this and this and this and this. He goes, eh. I said, well, I got this Western. He goes, and I told him about it. And he said, let me see if I can run with that. And I said, Pete, Pete, I've been trying for years. Nobody would give this the time of day. And Pete said, give me a shot at it. So he went <clears throat> to, uh, to Paul Levitt's on it. And uh, uh, Paul got interested in it. And he said, and then Paul said, you know, well, okay, but why Lawton? You know, like, um, why not use uh, the Kents, who are who Superman's family? You know, bigger name, draw more people in. And Pete said, well, because John says some of these people aren't going to be so nice. And uh, Paul said, so? <laughs> so he gave us freedom to go ahead with the Kents. And uh, we ultimately determined on 12 regular-sized issues and using those 12, I said, okay, we can do it. Uh, to me, if I had the Kents, then the basic idea was, okay, how did the Kents come to be in Kansas? And so in doing the research, I realized that there were three uh, time zones, all, all connected, that, that I wanted to deal with. And one was Kansas pre-Civil War, when, uh, when the territory of Kansas was sort of like the dress rehearsal for the Civil War, mm-hmm. and then the Kansas and Missouri area during the Civil War, and there were very interesting things going on at, uh, there at the time, and then um, Kansas post-Civil War, uh, and 
that that also was real interesting because a lot of the things that we associate with the Wild West, like um, uh, the uh, the gunfight at high noon on the main on the main street, well, that's Kansas, or uh, well, that's Missouri, but right across the the river from Kansas. Mm-hmm. But the towns of Abilene, of Ellsworth, of Dodge City, that's all in Kansas. The uh, the cattle drives went to those towns, and that's where the railhead was. So uh, a lot of what we think of in terms of the West is Kansas. So um, I used all three of them in order, uh, each each arc had four issues, and we developed them into the characters and stuff like that. I did a ton of research, just a ton. My joke at the time was that if we balance my page rate against the books I've been buying, maybe I'll break even. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, I would delve into these things and stuff, and uh, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that um, a lot of actual historical events were depicted in it. Yes, yes, it's historical fiction. I don't claim that I'm writing a history book. I wrote uh, a historical fiction, but a lot of the history was accurate, and uh, to the point that um, sometimes I've heard from teachers, including at the college level, who have used it uh, as as required reading oh, wow. in order to give people a feel for it. Because one of my things at the time was that these were people who didn't know, as we know, how the Civil War was going to end, how this was going to happen, how that was going to happen. They were living through it, so I wanted to give that sense of it at the time. Uh, you worked on one of the uh, Amalgam Comics books, uh, Bullets and Bracelets. What was that experience like? That was a lot of fun. Just a lot of fun. Uh, uh, I was tapped for it, and uh, uh, one one of the things that was interesting was you know the, the mashup between uh, DC tropes and Marvel tropes, uh, not to make it all work, and also the idea that um, they wanted each issue to to be as if it were had been in this long running continuity. You know, uh, so I was able to invent a continuity to it as well. And uh, uh, so we had Steve Trevor as the Punisher, and then, of course, Wonder Woman, and had them be a couple as well. And we brought in all sorts of other things. Um, I love playing with continuity. You know, I don't necessarily want to rewrite it. I want to deepen it, maybe, but I love playing with it. And that certainly gave me another chance to do that. Absolutely. Uh, I was always a big fan of those books, although I've, I've told the story on the podcast before in other interviews that, um, you know, when that came out, I was maybe 12 years old um, and I didn't know, I didn't understand that this wasn't an existing continuity because it was written, as you said, like there was this, this weight behind it. So it was only afterwards I found out, you know, years later, oh, that was only a stunt. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Because I was just a kid. I had no idea. Suddenly I read this comic and it was like this new, but they're referencing all these old comics and just like every other comic. So I just kind of assumed it was part of this long lineage and uh, I was totally uh, taken for a, a young, naive fool. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you are our, our target audience. Absolutely. Hook, line, and sinker. Like you had me. <laughs> yep. And that's fun for me too. 
Um, what was it like kind of, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, you started, uh, with first comics, then you were with DC, and then you also had a stint in the, in the nineties with Marvel. What was it like kind of working for, for Marvel as opposed to DC? Um, was it a, a different feel and how did that express itself? I perceived it as a different feel, but I don't know as if that was necessarily true. Um, there was a little bit more editorial uh, di- direction. Um, some of the books worked very fine for me. Um, I very much enjoyed doing uh, the Heroes for Hire books, which I guess they're now um, regathering into uh, some trade paperbacks. Uh, I guess one's coming out, I think I read in December, and the other one in January, which will cover my entire run on, the, on Heroes for Hire. And uh, uh, I had a lot of fun with that one in particular. Uh, I also managed to do, because, uh, and again, this is this started off just as pure ego on my part, but because I had done a Western at DC, I wanted to do some Westerns over at Marvel, and so I got to do two uh, miniseries over there, you know, uh, uh, using their Western heroes. So uh, uh, I enjoyed my time. I don't know if I got as much chance to play with things on a regular basis as I did at DC. Mm. So, uh, uh, for instance, when I was, I, I came on to X-Men and I was working on that, but I found it very restricting. I would come up with an idea for a storyline and it would have to get through the X office and then uh, I would ask, uh, uh, they would come back and say, well, no, you can't do something that storyline. It's too close to what we're doing in the, in the X-Books. Mm. The X-Books. I said, well, could you tell me what those are so I don't keep tripping over it? And they said, well, no, you don't have high enough clearance. Oh. So uh, because that was very difficult to work and to do, then uh, uh I finally gave up on on X Men. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed a lot of the other work that I did. It just as a, as a note for listeners, you, so you mentioned your work on Iron, uh, sorry, on Heroes for Hire. So it is being collected in two volumes: one coming out in December, one coming out in January. So uh, your entire run will be covered there. Yeah, and uh, those books were kind of very different for me as well. You know, my writing's a little bit different. Um, it's very pell-mell in many ways. You know, like one thing on top of another, you know, uh, this being brought in, that being brought in. Sometimes uh, um, I wouldn't complete the story in one issue. I'd complete it at the start of the next issue and then go on to something else. And for a while, I was having fun with the narrator on it, too. Uh, the narrator actually became a character in it. I got kind of hysterical at some point and actually got fired Oh, the book. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. She comes out to, uh, on one page and tells him they fired, uh, and so then the narration calmed down a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> um, in, in and around the same time, so it's interesting that you know you you had that experience with X Men, and then you were also then writing uh, the Bishop series and the XSE series. What was it like? Kind of, were you given a little bit more autonomy with that? A little bit, yeah. Um, I got a chance to uh, uh, to play some things in in the 
second two miniseries, uh, they sort of pointed me in a general direction, suggesting I might want to explore this or explore that. In the first one, I had a, a lot more freedom. Um, I kept on asking, what's Bishop's first name? And they said, he doesn't have one. I said, come on, he has to have a first name. But no, no, I was never able to give him a first name on it. But... <laughs> um, uh, but I enjoyed working on those issues, and I was working, particularly on the first one, um, kind of turned around to the other. I know I worked with Charles Pacheco on the uh, on the Heroes for Hire, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I really enjoyed the artists that I worked with on, uh, on the Bishop series as well. Uh, actually, it looks like the first series was Pacheco. Was it? Was, did Carlos do that one? Yeah, I think okay. Heroes, uh, Heroes for Hire, actually, I think, wasn't that, uh, oh, no, nah, I'm forgetting. Uh, wasn't it Pascal Ferry? Oh, that's right, that's right. I'm, I'm inverting them. Uh, yes, um, uh, Pascual did Heroes for Hire, uh, who I also enjoyed working with. He's a tremendous artist. And Carlos is, uh, we met and at one time when he, was, when he was in New York, and uh, uh, we just hit it off on so many different things. He's a tremendous, tremendous artist. Uh, before we close out, I do have to ask uh, about Martian Manhunter. What was it right, like writing that character and working with Mandrake again? Oh, well, uh, Tom and I were, were looking for something to do after uh, Spectre was finishing up and uh, because we enjoyed working together so much. And um, Martian Manhunter was offered to us. Uh, and uh, we knew we couldn't do the same thing that we did in Spectre. This wasn't going to be a single storyline you know we weren't going to be able to uh, wrap it all up at the end of it so um, what we decided to do instead was to uh, look into his background to to deepen that Um, for us the major difference between uh, Superman and uh, Martian Manhunter are often uh, very much alike to the point where uh, Martian Manhunter sometimes seems just like a green version of Superman. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, uh, he has many of the same powers plus a few of Superman doesn't. But uh, we wanted to, to take a look at how they were different. And to us, one of the big differences was that uh, kal came to Earth as an infant and then is raised on Earth as, uh, as somebody from Kansas. You know, you know, he may be born on Krypton, but he's got Kansas values. That, that's what he was imbued with when he was growing up. John Jones came to Earth as an, an, as an adult, and he came from a society that had already existed and that had formed him. So our question was, uh, what was that society like? And so, uh, as some people point out, it, it became much more of a science fiction story. We were able to explore different aspects of that as well. Um, for instance, we knew that he had had uh, a wife and a child back in Mars, but they had never been named. So we named them. And, um, and we sort of explored um, if it's a whole race of telepaths, well, what would be the protocols so that you aren't intruding on each other's thoughts when you shouldn't be? Hmm. Um, and so we we really enjoyed playing around with exploring those differences because we felt that that would define John better. Absolutely. I, actually, I can't remember where it was recently, but I was reading, I, I feel like it was another creator of some sort, and they were mentioning how 
Um, in actuality, the Superman story isn't the immigrant story, but the adoption story, and that Martian Manhunter is the one who's actually the immigrant story. Yeah, yeah, I think I would agree with that. Also, it's kind of fun sometimes, um, lately on Supergirl, where they have Martian Manhunter, and, and every once in a while I'll see uh, something that indicates to me that they have read those stories that Tom and I did and borrow a few things here and there from them. Uh, I have to close out with this because um, we've kind of danced around it a little but how did you feel about the Suicide Squad film? I loved it. I loved it. I, I had a great time. It's not the Citizen Kane of superhero movies nowhere near it but I give it a good solid B. There are flaws in it. Yeah, sure. But uh, it was a great popcorn film and it's it's just a very entertaining time uh, at the movies and for me it's, um, it felt like the squad it is true to what I felt the squad was so uh, so I had a real good time and for you was this, was the standout um, um, Viola Davis um, the entire cast uh, uh, Viola certainly as Amanda was great but I also really enjoyed Will Smith as Deadshot I enjoyed uh, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn um, all the characters in it you know I, had a, I, I enjoyed watching you know like uh, so yeah am I prejudiced sure you bet <laughs> but uh, but from my own prejudice view it's a good time movie for sure um, and can you tell us what you've got lined up for the future yeah sure um, and coming up very soon Tom Mandrake and I have united uh, together again and we're working on a uh, Kickstarter project that is funded and being completed, in fact, called Cross, K-R-O-S, Hallowed Ground, and combines um, uh, vampires and the Battle of Gettysburg in, uh, in the American Civil War. Uh, one battle is fought during the day, and then another one at night as vampires swoop in to uh, drink the blood of the wounded and dying. Oh. And uh, Cross is a vampire hunter uh, in it, and uh, so he fights a different battle. Uh, but he also gets him sucked up into the, the, the whole battle of Gettysburg. So um, that was done as a Kickstarter. Like I said, it's been funded. We are in the process of completing it now. You know, again, there's so many mundane things you've got to take care of, like uh, as you publish your own thing. If people want to take a look at it, they can go to Indiegogo, and um, there you can uh, find it. And even if they want to, they can still pre-order uh, the book, you know, we'll print up according to what the orders are, mm-hmm. and then we'll see whether or not afterwards we go anywhere else with it. But right now, the only thing that's guaranteed is the uh, is the initial printing, and then Jan Dersma uh, and I, who d- uh, did Star Wars together, Jan is uh, uh, Jan came up with this idea for called Hexer Dusk, which uh, which is another kind of space opera thing, and Scott. Uh, it's got spaceships, it's got uh, magic, it's got uh, uh, blasters, it's got weirds, it's got monsters, you know, uh, uh, and, and a very interesting central character. Wow, so, that sounds really interesting. Uh, so that was also done as a, uh, as a Kickstarter, fully financed, and we are now in the process of, of making it real. And that'll be out hopefully pretty soon. And um, that too, you know, like if people want to go to Indiegogo, uh, I, or maybe it'll still be up on the Kickstarter, 
uh, page, but you can see things from it, sample pages, you know, get an idea uh, of the look and the feel. And Jen's doing tremendous work. She's inking herself on it, uh, which I don't think has happened much before. And uh, there's a profound difference. I mean, her other inkers have always been very good, but this is Jan inking herself. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today and spending so much of your time going through our many, many questions. And um, I think our listeners will really enjoy uh, your take on, on your career and uh, also the mechanics of writing because you've told us a lot about kind of how you approach projects and how that has gone throughout your career. So I think it's been very informative. Well, thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, take care.